many years as a spy, all nonsense, he was no spy, I was be absolutely sure he wasn't a spy. Catholic bishops in China are not spies, neither are Protestant missionary spies, but this will do to put him in jail on. And he told a story of the barbarous treatment. There was a piece in the Reader's Digest about a year and a half ago called Hostage and Peking about a British news member. Did you read it? Did that leave you feeling comfortable when you got through? Horrible, absolutely horrible what they did to that man. Inhuman. In retaliation for something that had been done to some communist newsmen in, in the British Hong Kong. That's the British Kong, 400 square miles. Now, Christianity, real Christianity in China, both Protestant and Catholic, has been given underground. It's in secret. The churches today that the communist government recognizes are puppet churches where um, the leaders have sold out to this government and are making the church a, um, a tool to be used by the communist government as a means to an end, just to propagate communism. And, um, well, there's an old saying, he who eats supper with the devil has to have a long spoon. I just hope our President Nixon hasn't bit off more than he can chew, but I sadly fear that while the immediate results of this may seem favorable, the long-range results are going to be very serious. That's in the hands of God, of course. Now, there are no missionaries in China today at liberty and able to go about their business. The few that are left there, a mere handful, mostly from Europe, are in house arrest and unable to do anything. And the uh, open churches that meet uh, legally with sanction of the government are no churches anymore. They are promoting uh, communist ideology, and Christianity is so mixed up in it that you could hardly recognize it. When I left China before the communist takeover, and just before World War II, in 1941, I think, spring of that year, Pearl Harbor was in the fall of that year, it was reported that there were um, the one Protestant Christian per thousand people of China and one Roman Catholic Christian per thousand people. In other words, taking Protestant and Catholic together, two per thousand. Beaver Falls with 18,000 people, we would have 36 Christians in this city. That'd be the very elect, wouldn't it? 36. And uh, this is a result of what well, Catholic missions have gone on in China off and on since uh, the 1500. Francis Xavier, one of the early Jesuits, was, was uh, intending to go there when he died. He had been in Japan. And uh, there was some missionary work way back in the Middle Ages, and that's what we're coming up with a little bit here today. Protestant missionary work in China began about 1820. At that time, it was a death penalty to anybody that would teach the Chinese language to a foreigner. Robert Morrison, the first uh, real, one of the first two or three Protestant missionaries in China, risked his life and during this. He uh, learned Chinese and he risked the life of his teachers and finally completed a complete translation of the Bible into Chinese done in London. One place to do it in China. And uh, this is the country that has the most acute xenophobia. I don't know any time, I've lived there 11 years. Any country where patriotism and love of country takes the form of fear and hatred of foreigners worse than it does in China. I was repeatedly called a foreign devil. 
is uh, one of the mildest terms that applied to American missionaries. Juan Devil. Well, uh, there has never been a mass movement to Christianity in China. Worked among the Aboriginal tribes, about 50 tribes in China, with a culture similar to the American Indians. These are people who were there before the Chinese came, and they've been, uh, part of them have been merged, and others have been pushed to the high mountains and so forth in the frontier. And worked among these people, dollar for dollar and man for man, has been about ten times as successful as worked among the Chinese. And some of these tribes have come over on uh, mass. As, as a group to Christianity and uh, become Christianized. Among the Chinese uh, converts, I won the hard way, one by one, against the bitter opposition of their relatives. And there has never been so much as one village that ever, as a body, came over to become Christians that I know of in China itself. Young fellow came to our mission and uh, he was educated, he had a good job, and so this tickets for the Trans-Siberian Railroad trip in the city office, ticket office. He'd been around our mission. He was uh, intellectually at least, and I'm spiritually converted to Christianity, and he went in his tent. He wanted to be baptized. But his father wouldn't let him. You can't believe that nobody's free in China as long as their father's living or their older brother. If they're 80 and their brother's 90, you do what he says. But his father wouldn't let him, and he said, his father said to him, is your name Tom? Yeah. Nobody with that name has ever been a Christian, and you're sure enough not going to be the first one. <laughs> Later, however, he did get his courage up, and he and his family received Christian baptism and became a Christian family, breaking away from the family tradition. It took a lot of courage to do this. Now, um, this is... Uh, Christianity as it was, not persecuted at that time, but uh, uh, very difficult to make progress with it because of the intense feeling, and the Chinese identified this with foreign culture, and therefore they were reacting at the same time against, um, let's say, what they call foreign imperialism and Christianity. In 1900, the Boxer Movement, broke out. This was, well, the nearest thing we ever had to miss country to that is the Ku Klux Klan, a, a, an oath-bound secret society called Isha Twin. This means United Society of Harmonious Fists. They were sort of the mafia of China and uh, in cahoots with the Empress Dowager. Now, she was a, about 1900, a terrible person, just like she wasn't a Chinese. She was a Manchu. Manchus had conquered China and uh, set themselves up to be the, the, the ruling family. She kidnapped the emperor, a young fellow, and parked him on an island in a big lake where he couldn't get away. And then she set herself up to be the ruler of China. A real fire eater. Jezebelic, squared, and white cute. The empress soldier, when one of her maid servants displeased her, he dealt with them the short way. You lift a steel manhole over a sewer or a cistern or reservoir on the palace now, pop the gal in and put the cover back. This was the trial, the verdict, and the penalty all in one. 
And the, the Empress Dowager was in cahoots with these boxers. They went through the streets shouting, Hell! I talked once with a, a Chinese who had survived it. He became a Christian later. He was not a Christian when they were on the warpath in 1900. But the band, roving bands, went through the streets of these hooligans shouting, Shah! Shah! Kill! Kill! And when they found any Christians or anybody connected with foreign countries, the British American Tobacco Company got it from the next just the same as the Christian church. And the bandages were confirmed. It's all the same business, foreign devil. They killed him. And they would give people the option, will you renounce Christ or will you die? Uh, thousands of Chinese Christians and many missionaries, including tiny babies, were, were put to death with the sword by the boxers. One place they surrounded a girls' middle school, Christian school, boarding school, and surrounded this building and told the girls to come out and fit or step on a cross that they had put in the ground. And those that did this, they would save their life, and if not, they would be killed, and the girls didn't come out. Then they set fire to the building, and the girls came out, and most of them, uh, two or three, stood or stepped on the cross, the rest of them were beheaded. Now, that was 1900. Let me tell you, the real progress of Christianity in China started from 1900. It's perfectly amazing how the rice Christians got off the ship, and there was some danger of having your head chopped off. And to those people who were just hanging around expecting to get some fringe benefits or something, you know, it just dropped right out of the picture like that. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, when there's some danger of suffering and death, you don't pretend to be a Christian. You're pretty likely to have the real thing or else leave it alone. And the, the real progress of Christianity started from 1900, and uh, it is amazing how much was done considering the fact that uh, China has not had real civil peace since 1910, until the communists took over, and that's uh, in itself so absolutely destructive of religious freedom. Now then, when did Christianity, according to Boykoff's book, first get to China, and who did it? This is question 79 here. Anybody know that the student of church history, who the Nestorians were? Well, this was a heresy celebrated in the early church. According to Orthodox Christian belief, Christ has two natures united in one person. He is a divine person with two natures, divine and human. This was defined at the Council of the South Sweden, A.D. 452, I believe, after long discussion, Christ, the Westminster Catechism, says the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Now, that was orthodoxy. All that cannot be a new heresy about the person of Christ. All the possibilities have been uh, mathematically exhausted. They can't be a new one. But um, there were those who said Christ was had only one nature. 
either his divine nature or his human nature. And there were those who said that Christ was two persons. And this is apparently what the Nestorians did. And they distinguished between Jesus and Christ and held that uh, Christ is the divine person and Jesus is the human person. So they held two persons in Christ, distinguishing this way sharply between setting up these two natures as if they were two different beings. Well, this is the distortion of Christianity. Certainly it was rejected by the church as a heresy, and rightly so, but it had a strong following in the Near East. And among the less theologically inclined, it seemed to go over pretty well. And um, the Nestorians expanded eastward into India and Central Asia and finally into China. And here was um, a, a monument, a stone, was discovered in 1625. And you see that's uh, um, 350 years ago, 1625, in Sion Fu, which is in northwestern China. And this had a Christian inscription on it. And um, it told something about the people that put it up and what they were doing. And this was uh, accepted as authentic. It was put up by the Nestorian missionaries. And is mentioned in Gibbon's book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. According to Gibbon, the historian, and I think he had the data for this, the Nestorians did not travel to northwest China overland. Some in the Middle Ages in Marco Polo's time did. They went by sea and entered China through the port of Canton in South China and then went overland from there. And they got some favors from the government of China at that time. And they got ahead to some extent. Now, uh, what, uh, let's see, uh, it was charged by many people, this is uh, still under question uh, 79, that this stone was a fake or a forgery. And you find many letters. The Blakelock says here that Voltaire and Renan and others uh, made this charge that this was a fake or a forgery. That, of course, uh, ought to be proved if somebody charges something like this. Why would anybody put up a monument to uh, the end of the earth like that to, uh, if it wasn't real? And today this is universally accepted as genuine. And uh, the question is raised, how much did these people accomplish in China, and why did it die out? Anybody got any ideas on this from reading the book? Uh, Christianity, in this somewhat distorted form, flourished for a couple, three hundred years in China, and then died out. Why would that be? What did they do wrong? Or should we just blame it on the devil and let it go with that? Mr. Harris? Yeah. Now, you realize that China, until recently at least, was a country with a great majority of very ignorant people. And I left uh, 95% illiterate, among the highest illiteracy rates in the world. And a small intelligentsia and official class. And uh, it's difficult to work among the ignorant. They can't read, 
You have to use pictures and talk and all sorts of ways of trying to get your message across. And this is very, very difficult. And um, the temptation has been with various groups at various times in a country like China to more or less uh, try to approach the country through the educated and, um, let's say, style-setting ruling class, the intelligentsia. And when you start to do that, the temptation is to tone down your beliefs a little bit to make it seem more acceptable to them and more like what they already believe. They're only too likely to do this anyhow. And this is what the Nestorians did. They approached them China from the top down, not from the bottom up. They dealt with the educated class and um, they translated parts of the Bible into Chinese. Some of these have been recovered. Psalms and parts of Gospels and others. But they were dealing with an elite at the top and these people inevitably um, made a syncretism between Christianity and their former, uh, let's say, idolatrous and pagan faith. And the result of this was that Christianity tended to get diluted so you could hardly find it in the mixture. And uh, this would then lack the real dynamic and power of the Holy Spirit to, uh, that is the real power of missionary work to, to promote it. And uh, so uh, finally it died out and uh, let's say it was buried without being warned, more or less. Uh, it's academic whether something was lost by Nestorianism dying out in China. In the first place it had an inadequate form of the gospel to start with, with their mistaken view about Christ. This was to start with. Secondly, after they got this mixed with Chinese ideas, this was still further distorted. And maybe the amended uh, uh, decline and fall of Nestorianism is not really much lost to the Christian cause in the world. The church died, notice the bottom of page 87, it was dry rot, not persecution, suicide, nor murder, which ensured its demise, or at least its passing as a church. Now, there's two interesting facts given here. The Japanese scholar, Saiki, who has studied the Nestorian inscription intensively, he says that the Nestorianism, or the uh, leftovers of it, survives in two forms in China. One is 20 million Muslims in China, contain a host of descendants. Apparently, these Nestorians got Christianity so attenuated and so mixed up that uh, they could scarcely see any important difference between this and uh, Islam. It's a monotheistic faith, of course. And uh, the Muslims in China are a very distinct community. Peking, the capital of China, when I lived there, had 40 mosques, more mosques than any city of Asia east of India. But the Muslims and the Chinese, the ordinary Chinese, the non-Mohammedan Chinese, uh, love each other like vinegar and soap. And furthermore, uh, if there's a broken window pane in your alley, it's 91 and Mohammedan kid did it. This is their reputation. And uh, anyway, this is one thing that uh, the, the uh, final uh, membership of the Mestorian movement became Muslim. And uh, the other is um, a secret society of the Taoist religion, 
Remember, if you had some kind of religion, you came up with this bizarre idea, the pill of immortality. You take this pill, so many a day, three times a day, for so and so many years, and you'll never die. And if you die, you made a mistake counting the pill. You want to get <laughs> But uh, this is a uh, typically, um, oh, it's a magical belief. Taoism is a religion that's just full of magic. And uh, this, uh, of course, an awful distortion of the Christian idea of immortality. Only the word you could say is common between the two. But uh, this Japanese scholar says that um, these Taoists who uh, believe in the pill of immortality seem to have some leftovers of Christian teaching from the Nestorians in their rituals uh, and in their law. Now, uh, Leaving China, Aswan, Egypt. Are any of you familiar with the um, work that has been done in Egypt at, um, what's the name of this place? Um, on the upper Nile, where there's been a big dam, Abu Simbel. Abu Simbel. I gave him $10 once. I've got a vested interest in Abu Simbel. I own about three bricks over there. <laughs> Other symbol where there were super-sized statues, the whole temple with super-sized images of Ramesses II. This was going to be flooded by this dam and lost forever. And the uh, United Nations and uh, many organizations raised money. And a uh, Norwegian firm, I believe it was, of engineers went and took the whole thing apart, uh, numbered every piece which is described the most interesting in the National Geographic. And we assembled it 200 feet higher on the top of a cliff, uh, just like it was before. Now the floodwaters can come and the temples of Abu Simbel will be preserved forever. Now this is the most noted archaeological remain that was threatened by this uh, big dam project, D-A-M. <laughs> this uh, big Aswan dam project. The, uh, the United States declined to pay the money, and Egypt got it from Moscow, right, with a financial support. But there were many other places where there were believed to be valuable archaeological remains underground, and archaeology, always cramped for money, was unable in time to get everything. But they made a furious effort to get as much as they could of these things out before the floodwaters finally covered the whole place forever, and it would be forever lost. And among other things, um, notice here, and this is question uh, 81 here, middle of page 88, in the remains of a 10th century Christian monastery on the Egyptian Sudanese border, they found an ancient Coptic prayer book. Now, Coptic is a descendant of the Egyptian language. The Coptic church is the uh, Egyptian uh, form of uh, Eastern Christianity. Coptic. It's the modern form that is still spoken today, the descendants of Coptic. And from the New Testament manuscripts, there is Coptic, the form of Egyptian. Yeah, Mr. Davis. Uh, what type of manuscripts are in the small series? Which manuscripts? I didn't even know there was one. Well, Did you hear that on the news or something? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. They got it out. Yeah. 
speak. I heard that the Prime Minister of Jordan was assassinated, and uh, our uh, Palestinian students said it was a good thing. And that he ought to be assassinated. <laughs> he said that to Mrs. Lawrence. So he's a terrible person. He ought to be here today. That's his point of view. But, uh, anyway, um, this is uh, a place, I believe, that is today flooded or will be soon, probably is already, by the waters of the big lake produced by the Aswan Dam. And here is a hymn to the cross attributed to Jesus on the eve of the crucifixion. Now it says that Jesus with his disciples went out of the upper room and across the Kidron Valley toward the Mount of Olives the night before he was crucified and said when they had sung a hymn according to all um, Jewish sources this would be Psalm 118 out of the Bible. This is what was sung, on, one of the songs sung at that time on the eve of the Passover. But here this manuscript that is discovered uh, represents it as something else. It says, allegedly composed on the Mount of Olives, the large, the long ridge south of Jerusalem, with the magnificent view of the holy city, Tilted like a great platter on the further slope. And here is the hymn in English, of course. Rise up, rise up, O holy cross, and lift me, O cross. I shall mount upon you, O cross. They shall hang me upon you as a witness to them. Now this is attributed to Jesus and found in a manuscript in the Coptic language way up there in Upper Egypt. Now the question is, of course, um, is this authentic or is it um, not authentic? What does the author have to say about this? Well, uh, Mr. Thompson, if you were an archaeologist, would you say just on the face of it, this is likely to be authentic, or would you have question marks? You have question marks. I think I speak from Missouri, too, and uh, want some evidence before I'd accept it. Are the words authentic? Blakelock uh, says it is clear from the Gospels Jesus foresaw and foretold his death. It was obviously enough that the corrupt and collaborating authorities of Judaism would not let him live. Collision was inevitable. The ghastly manner of the end could also be foreseen. He would be handed over to the Romans. The Romans would crucify him. The cross was a symbol for a grievous load. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. A saying uh, of Jesus, of course, in the Bible. Now, in the face of all that, um, you see, Blakelock says, well, we admit Jesus foresaw and predicted his death and the manner of it. Sure. Still, he finds it difficult to believe that Jesus really said this. In other words, that this hymn or this part of the hymn is really a saying of Jesus. In the middle of page 89, question 82 here, they are reading back into the events of the Passion Week of a later Christian theology and the hymn is no doubt based on one of the many apocryphal accounts which has not survived. It is also alien, alien to the poignant simplicity of the narrative in the New Testament. Now, uh, there is also uh, a piece that has come from that same area of the Aswan Dam reporting an alleged conversation after the resurrection 
and four days before the ascension of Jesus. How many days was the ascension after the resurrection? Mr. Dennison, 40 days. Huh? All right, 40 days. And uh, during these 40 days, Jesus appeared, disappeared, and reappeared to his disciples, but only to believers, never to, to think of the drama, supposing he had walked in on Pontius Pilate or Herod or somebody, but Jesus didn't do that. He appeared to believers only. This does not mean the resurrection was a phantasm. It was only granted to believers to be witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Now, uh, this is a story of an alleged conversation, and uh, here it is, toward the bottom of page 89. They contain a flavor of Paul's use of the word mystery but are in no way similar to anything else said by the Apostle. Christ answered, O my chosen one, Peter, and you, my fellow heirs, I have not hidden anything from you ever concerning which you have inquired of me, nor have I, shall I hide anything from you now. Ask me anything which you wish to know. Whereupon Peter asked the Master to unfold the mystery of the cross and tell why Christ will carry the cross at the last judgment. Does it say in the Bible Christ will carry the cross at the last judgment? I read it, he'll come on the clouds of heaven, and in symbolic language, in Revelation, riding a white war horse, conquering them to conquer. But um, that's symbolism, of course. But uh, this says here, carry the cross. Oh, my chosen one, Peter, you and my brethren, are aware of the lies which were told against me on the cross and the spitting at me and the words of contempt uttered against me. This is why I shall bring the cross with me to reveal their shame and to put their sin upon their heads. No attentive reader of the Gospels can fail to mark the difference, but the story is worth quoting to show, in contrast, the strength and simple power of the Gospel narrative. Now, you see, when Jesus was crucified, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How different this is from saying, I'm going to show them up for what they are when the time comes, and uh, sort of requite them for what they did. The monastery text from the floor of the future Aswan Lake shows what the tampering of time can do to an authentic narrative. Here, if they will, is material on which the form critics may exercise their perverse ingenuity. Let them spare the brief, clear narratives of the risen Christ. In other words, if they want to practice what is called form criticism, uh, let them go to work on this stuff and, and leave the Bible alone. What is form criticism, Mr. Beatty? Do you know what this word means? Well, it is so. Well, there's criticism and there's form criticism. Now, criticism is a neutral term. This can be believing or unbelieving, negative or positive. Form criticism is the idea that the New Testament documents are tendency writings. And there was a certain way that you write things up. Here are the angels and the shepherds and so forth. Uh, if you're going to describe the coming of a great man into the world, this is the proper form. Just like if you go into some fancy restaurant, there's a proper style for the menu. And uh, so there was a form in which people tended to describe this kind of thing. 
And people like Bookman and Bonhoeffer and so forth hold you have to strip the form off to get at the essence that's underneath. That uh, a lot of this, these stories about Jesus and so forth are merely the, the kind of things that it was considered uh, proper to tell about a great man or a great leader. And so they're merely a form, form geschichte, form criticism, form history. And this results in discounting uh, parts of the Christian record, and especially the supernatural parts concerning miracles, angels, and so forth. And Bonhoeffer, I believe, said that we deal with the generation in which man has come to age. And therefore, man has come to age and can no longer believe that stuff. So we have to revamp it so that it is acceptable to the modern mind of man who has come to age. Now, I would say in a quick answer to that, God is merciful and there's always hope that people can be converted. We had a, a man spoke in... Years ago, we had religious emphasis week in the chapel with a different speaker every day, and the final one in the field house, whole field house, last day. We had a guy down here that gave a kind of a, what I call it, a sort of a YMCA pep talk for spiritual emphasis week. <clears throat> you couldn't say he destroyed Christianity because there was no Christianity in it. But uh, just a sort of a do-gooding kind of a pep talk in chapel for spiritual emphasis week in Geneva College. And a student said to me down in the basement after, what that guy needs is to be converted. <laughs> and I said, I thought so too. And the trouble with these form critics is not that man has come to age, but that they are blind people eating the barn. That's the trouble. All right, the time is up.